0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's gonna be another Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm really looking forward to getting back to some longer form content on here and having some really great guests on starting next week. However, it's my finals week for my M&U nutritionist certification, so I'm really just trying to buckle down and do that. Q&As are a bit more bite-sized, so let's jump into it. First question is from stylist, and she says, I'm frustrated. I did reverse dieting, now I'm in maintenance. I lift weights at home five days a week and I only have up to 25 pounds dumbbells, I'm guessing, since there are no weights to be found to purchase right now. I weigh approximately 145. I've seen no weight gain or weight loss and I'm not seeing a change. I've been doing this since March. What am I doing wrong? Well, right right off the bat, you're just not going to see, like, you're at maintenance. Like, you're like, I'm not seeing any weight gain or loss. Like, okay, you're at maintenance. Like, it's assumed that you're not going to see... Weight gain, because you're not in a surplus. Weight loss, because you're not in a deficit. So the expectation of one of those happening is just not founded, it just not, doesn't behoove you to have that expectation because it's not gonna happen. Now, yes, your weight can fluctuate, you can go up, you know, standard deviation, up a pound, down a pound, whatever. But that's not weight really changing, that's just your natural weight fluctuation at maintenance. So of course you're not seeing a weight gain or weight loss, you're at maintenance. And on that note, seeing a change at maintenance, which we can effectively call recomp, body recomposition, where you're eating at around maintenance and you're burning fat and building muscle at the same time, happens really fucking slowly. And it happens really slowly for people who have been lifting for quite some time, but it happens still pretty slowly, you know, for people who have been lifting, you know, in their, in their more novice years. Um, obviously it happens more It's it's on a spectrum. The more trained you are, the less recomp you're capable of. The less trained you are, the more recomp you're capable of. But anybody doing recomp, it's gonna happen relatively slowly. Now, you said you've been doing it since March. Now that's probably long enough if you're doing everything right to see some change based on recomp. So if you've been doing this for seven months, if you've been lifting hard adequately with an intelligently designed program, eating enough protein, And you haven't seen any change and you're eating at maintenance calories, you haven't seen any changes in seven months, I'd probably look at your training and say, there's gotta be something wrong here. Listen, if it had been two or three months, I would be I'd tell you, hey, you're not being patient enough. And honestly, there's a good chance you're you're being overly critical about the expectations that you're assuming are gonna happen at maintenance, and assuming that you're gonna see you're saying, Oh, I, I you know, not seeing a change. Maybe you are, but it's not what you want. And if that's the case. I would buckle up because man, recomping happens really slowly. So the expectation that you're gonna burn a bunch of fat and build a bunch of muscle and totally change your shape at maintenance, it's just not likely, or at least not nearly as, as uh, efficacious for most people as it might be to do some surplus phases and some deficit phases. Now, my suspicion is that I would look at, if, if you were a coaching client, I would immediately look at your training and say, hey, this just isn't effective enough. Now, is that because you only have 25 pound weights? Potentially. It's not only because of that, because I think you can do a whole hell of a lot with up to 25 pound dumbbells. And when I, when people first went home into the stay at home quarantine, all of my clients were like, oh my God, I only have fives and eights and tens and twelves and bands. And we've been very productive. But what I will say is there did get a point where they just outgrew it to some degree where they the weights got lighter because you got stronger. And if you're doing it right, that that should happen. And yeah, 25 pound dumbbells are, they can be good for single leg movements. They can be good for pressing sometimes, but it, uh, you know, they're probably not heavy enough for a lot of that really great leg training, some of the back training. And you know, it might behoove you to look into getting some heavier weights. And that, that's a feeling that I've expressed to a lot of my coaching clients of like, hey. We can do several months of training with this. We're going to be creative. We're going to add pauses, slow eccentrics, bounces, you know, supersets, giant sets, pre-exhaust. We're going to make it hurt. It's going to suck. But you would do better in, in the, over the course of many months if you got some more load at some point. Being creative, it's going to run out a little bit. You know, there's a reason the people who are the most jacked in the world don't lift at home with bands and five-pound weights. That being said. I know you have up to 25s, I don't mean to be, you know, like you only have fives. You can still be productive with that. But I will say on some level, if your program is intelligently designed and you're putting forth the effort that you need to, to expect to see progress, then it should be only a matter of time before you need heavier weights. So if you don't, if you haven't needed heavier weights in the last seven months, I would raise a skeptical eyebrow. as to what are you doing training wise? You know, what does the program look like and is it intelligently designed? And are those two things together good enough to expect to see a change? Because if you look at that program and you know, maybe it's not very intelligently designed, it's mostly circuit training and it's not like strength training focused and you're not putting forth as much effort as one might need to be able to recomp, then those are the two things I would check first. Now, of course, I have no idea if those things are true. I don't, I'm not looking at your program and I have no idea how hard you're training, but those would be the first boxes I'd like to check. I suppose, nutritionally speaking, making sure you're eating enough protein—something like you know, you know, 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight—is a really good range for people who are looking to recomp, Um, Would be my next box that I would probably check. Um, now, something I'll say in general: if somebody, if you're out there and you're listening, you're like, "Man, this is me. I've been at maintenance and I haven't seen a change. It's been months and months and months. It's been years." Consider. Going into a surplus at some point. Like, just consider it. If you're at maintenance and you're like, I don't want to gain any weight, but you want to see your body change and it's not, how how long are you going to keep trying to do the same thing? Like, I'm recomping, 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 recomping. I'm like, do you look any differently than you did two years ago? They're like, no. I'm like, do you want to? They're like, yeah, I want to build muscle. Well, fuck. Just going to be better at a surplus. So, I'm not, we're not going to have that conversation now, but if you've been recomping for what feels like an eternity, I would check those three boxes first. I would look at my programming. I would look at my exercise intensity, my effort, and I would look at my protein intake. And if those things are still in check and you're still not seeing progress, I would consider not trying to recomp all the time and maybe consider a a focused muscle building phase. Second question is from Jules P. What's up Jules? And she says, how do some people keep reversing past their maintenance and not gaining weight? This is an interesting one. I'm going to try not to go too deep into it because this is a a pretty in-depth question when you really break it down. You can't reverse, let's just, let's just get some umbrella, like overarching terms out of the way. You cannot go past your maintenance into a surplus and not gain weight. Um, And I know what you mean. I know what you mean, but, but if you are not gaining weight, you're not in a surplus. Just like if you're not losing weight, you're not in a deficit. So we have to draw inferences from that fact. So if some people, like you said, how do some people keep reversing past their maintenance and not gaining weight? Well, the truth is they're still at their maintenance. And one thing I want people to understand is maintenance is a range. Maintenance is not just some, like one single number. Maintenance is a range, likely hundreds of calories where you can maintain your weight. I have clients who maintain their weight at 1500 and maintain their weight at 2200 calories. Now we'll talk about in a second what's happening there. But the first thing you need to understand is maintenance is a range. And the way I would rephrase this question is how do some people keep reversing past their expected maintenance and not gain weight? And the answer is, you know, kind of twofold. The, first, the answer, obviously, is that they underestimated how wide their maintenance range was. Now, what goes into how wide your maintenance range is? Like, how, you know, how is it that some people have a much wider range than others? And this goes into something that's not necessarily scientifically backed, but it's a theory of not really, I guess I suppose it's, it's fairly scientifically backed and and practically applicable is that some people have what we call adaptive metabolisms and some people have more rigid metabolisms. Now an adaptive metabolism means that if you overfeed over your, let's say predicted maintenance, um, your body will upregulate meat and will burn off those calories and you will stay the same weight. Now this is exactly what happens. Many people are familiar with the term metabolic adaptation. This is metabolic adaptation in the upward direction. So you have your maintenance expected maintenance number. It's one single number, even though of course it's not. And then your body has some level of adaptivity to overfeeding and underfeeding. And so if you, you know, some people, if if you go into a 300 calorie deficit below your expected maintenance, with a lot of people, nothing happens because your body downregulates need. And it offsets that deficit you've gone into. And people are like, well, I'm in a deficit. Well, you're not. You're underestimating how wide your maintenance range may be. And you might need to push calories even lower to finally get to a place where your body doesn't offset that calorie deficit with a down regulation and NEAT. Now, NEAT, what is NEAT? Sorry, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. AKA your subconscious movements throughout the day that are not in the gym. So walking to your car, fidgeting with your hands, blinking, tapping your toe, those are all neat. And to some degree, it's not something you can do anything about, right? Because of the word subconscious there, it's not really something you can do anything about. Now, I would posit that you could also, you know, you could upregulate some of your conscious movement to offset that subconscious movement, which is why things like step trackers can be so great when you go into a deficit because as your body, Adapt downward, you can keep your step count high, kind of like manually overriding that mechanism. Now, let's come back to adaptive versus rigid metabolisms. Some people, we all know these people, they can eat a lot of calories um, or, or they seem to be the kind of person who, as they eat more, not much really happens. And I would say that that is not... Uh, this, this idea that people can just eat whatever the fuck they want and they can eat as many calories they want and nothing happens, that's not true. And those people are likely not eating as many calories as you think and they're moving more than you think. Uh, they're not eating as often as you think and what you see, you know, that friend who eats whatever they, she wants and, and doesn't gain any weight, like she's not eating as often as you think. She's not eating as many total calories across the week as you think and she's probably moving more than you think but she might also have an adaptive metabolism. He She might have an adaptive metabolism and kind of what that looks like in a practical dieting sense is that these are the people That when they go in a deficit, let's start with the surplus. When they go in a surplus, they have to go into a really high surplus. And I'm going to use myself as an example here. When I want to go into a muscle building phase and I need to go into a surplus, I need to eat a fucking disgusting amount of food because my body adapts upward and burns off a lot of those calories. And I need to eat even more than that to finally push it into a real surplus. Now that might sound great. And we'll talk about whether it is or it isn't in a second, but... When I need to go into a calorie deficit, my body adapts equally aggressively. So this idea that you this adaptive metabolism is only a good thing and you know, you eat whatever you want, nothing happens. It works in both directions. So I'll give you practical numbers. When I need to go into a surplus, I need to eat 4,000 calories. That's the only way for my body weight to actually move up. But when I want to lose weight, I need to go down to like 2,000 calories which is insane that that's a 2000 calorie range that's insane my body down regulates meat when i give it less food which is you know a good thing evolutionarily speaking but not a good thing if you want to get leaner however you know my body tends to upregulate meat when i give it more food and what that usually ends up looking like is my body weight stays relatively the same and in 2020 in our food environment that's probably a good thing it's probably good to have a bit more of an adaptive metabolism, at least obviously buffering that upper end going into a surplus. Now what a rigid metabolism looks like is somebody who has a smaller maintenance range where if they overfeed by 300, that's a 300 calorie surplus. Their body doesn't adapt upward by upregulating meat as much. I'm being a bit binary here and uh, superlative and it's a rigid metabolism would be a metabolism doesn't adapt as much. Now this person, for example, let's say their maintenance was 2,500. They might need to go to 2,700 to go into a surplus. That's it. 200 extra calories. Great. We're in a surplus. They might also only need to go to, you know, 2,100 or 2,000 to get into a deficit. And that's a whole lot easier. So you have some people who benefit from being with a more rigid metabolism because they don't have to go at much lower than their predicted maintenance. They don't have to drop calories by 1,000 to finally lose weight. Um, but they also don't respond to overfeeding as well. And And one of the classic studies where, um, kind of indicates this, this, this difference in response to overfeeding is it was a very tightly controlled study where they predicted everybody's maintenance calories. And then they fed them, you know, exactly 1000 calories over their maintenance. So 1000 calories over their maintenance, which is a lot. that's like, you know, on average about should be, should be expected about two pounds of fat gained per week. Um, and what they saw was that people had a very wide range of reactions to that thousand calories of overfeeding. Let me just put it to you this way: some people gained more weight than you'd expect just based on the the, the thousand calories. So some people, when they were overfed, actually moved less. And some people, when overfed by a thousand calories, lost weight. Just listen to that again. Some people, when overfed by a thousand calories, lost weight, which means their body upregulated meat, so much so that it offset and beyond the calories that they were being overfed. So there is a wide range. Of course, most people fall in the middle of not that rigid and not that adaptive. Um, But there are gonna be outliers on either side and you'll see some people who predict their maintenance calories to be 2000 and they're eating 2500 and nothing is still happening. Nothing's moving. And that might just be because they underestimated their maintenance calories, and that is quite often an important factor. But it could also be that that person has a quite adaptive metabolism, and the more they feed, the more their body burns. Um, Those are probably the same people that, when it comes time to be in a calorie deficit, have to go much lower than you'd expect. Um, Yeah, so I hope that answers your question. Next question is from at Vargs96. It says, when you're in a surplus, how does one determine if that weight you're adding is muscle versus fat versus water? Such a good question. When you're in a surplus, you're gaining weight. How do we know what it is that you're gaining? The best way would be to get, you know, weekly or monthly muscle biopsy where they, you know, cut out a piece and I've talked about this before, they cut out a piece of your muscle, they look at the cross-sectional area, they see if it's good. Like, but we're not gonna do that. So we can't use those direct measures. We cannot get a direct measure of muscle gain. It's not practical. So we need to use a lot of indirect factors, what we would call proxies of muscle growth to kind of you know convince us that we're doing what we can and we're checking all the boxes and that if you check all the boxes, then you have to put faith that you are gaining muscle. And you know, even though we can't use those physiological, those direct methods, we can use proxies. Now, what are those proxies? Well, one, your weight has to be going up. Here's the deal. If your weight is going up, and your strength in the five to 30 rep range are both going up, then you can be pretty damn sure you're building muscle. Now, if your weight is going up and your strength is not going up, then you should probably, you know, I would be, it would be a pretty fair bet to say you're not building, you're not building any or much muscle at all. So if your weight is going up and your strength in the hypertrophy rep ranges are going up, five to 30 rep range, then you can, if you can check both of those boxes, and we can talk about rates of gain in a second. But if your weight's going up and your strength is going up, then you can bet that you're building muscle, and that's the closest you can get. You can just bet. We're not gonna, we're not gonna go into a lab and have your muscles tested every month. So we have to just say, hey, is your weight going up? Is your strength in the hypertrophy rep range going up? Okay, we have to say that those two things happening gives us a really good chance that we're building muscle. Now I would say that weight going up at a rate in which you can be certain you're building maximum muscle and minimum unnecessary extra fat is probably another good box to have to check. And that rate would be gaining at about one to 2% of your body weight per month. So if you're a 200 pound person, that's two to four pounds per month. Now if you're gaining eight pounds per month, yes, you're probably still building maximum muscle, but you're just building extra fat, extra unnecessary fat. Now if you're gaining at uh, 0.25 pounds per month, then you can be pretty sure you're building some muscle, but definitely not maximum amounts of muscle that you could be growing if you were in that one to 2% of your body weight per month. So weight going up by about one to 2% of your body weight per month and strength going up in that five to 30 rep range are really good what I would call like north stars to like to follow, to go there, to to, to use those as a, a, a validation of what you're doing. Um, I suppose now that I'm saying that on one note, um, one might say... So so getting stronger is is due to one of two things. It's due to a neural adaptation or an increase in muscle size. Now you're asking specifically in the context of muscle size. So how do we know that the strength gains you're getting are not just neural adaptations? You're not just getting like let's say your squat is going up. You're not just an example of a neural adaptation would be just the fact that you're getting better at the movement, right? You're getting better at squatting, your technique is getting better, you're getting better at bracing, your your muscle fibers are firing in more synchronization. Like those don't necessarily have to do with muscle size. Those are neural adaptations. And a lot of times newbies who just come into the gym, their strength gains are almost all neural because it's all so fucking new for them that their body their neural adaptations happen so quickly. So how can you be sure that that strength gain in the five to 30 rep range isn't just neural? One of two ways. One, if you're an advanced trainee and you've been or 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 you've even just been training for some time and you're used to basic movement patterns. Um, you've squatted, you've deadlifted, you've you've hip thrusts, you've done pull-ups, you've done presses. Like there's not much more neural adaptations that are going to happen. Yes, they're always happening, but you've you know when you're a newbie and things are new, that's when you're making the most neural adaptations. So you're even if you're even relatively out of that newbie phase, like chances are you're not making massive neural neural gains. Um, so you can be pretty sure that most of it's muscle growth. And also, what you might wanna do is, instead of looking at your strength in that five to 30 rep range on your heavy compounds like your squat and your deadlift, which do tend to lend themselves to neural improvements because they're so technically demanding, you might wanna look at your isolation movements. Has your lateral raise, you wanna know if your shoulders got bigger? Your lateral raise, has it gotten stronger? Are you doing more reps, are you doing more weight? There's almost no fucking neural component to a lateral raise. It's the world's most simple movement. What about a bicep curl, a tricep pushdown? Man, a leg extension, right? A chest fly, even a hip thrust. Um, yeah, maybe not as much a hip thrust. It's a bit of an isolation movement, but at the same time, still pretty heavy compound, a little technically demanding. Um, a leg extension, right? A hamstring curl. Those things that really isolate just the strength of that muscle, and not really a large neural component. So if you really want to know, take a look at your isolation movements and see if those are going up. Listen, if you're doing a heavier in curls than you were last month, in the previous month, in the previous month, you can bet your ass that your biceps are getting bigger because of the two neural component or muscle growth. There's just not a big neural component. So you can be pretty sure that it's mostly muscle growth. For a squat, man, I'm you know I'm still getting and like I just said, I'm I'm a more advanced trainee, but I'm still getting better at the squat. And if my squat goes up by five pounds. I don't know if that's because my bracing got better or if my stance is better than it was before, but if my leg extension is going up, man, there's just no two ways about it. My quads are getting bigger. Awesome. We have got like 10 more minutes. Let's see how many I can get through here. Um, Mullah Sadiq says, hey, could you define a rest day? If usually on rest day, I get 8K steps and I get the same steps on an off day, along with stretching for 45 minutes, can it be considered a rest day? Now... Let's break this down into what's the point of a rest day? The point of a rest day is to rest. Mind blown, I know. But how do we know if you are in fact doing, you know, low enough stress activities where it is, you would check the box of being a rest day? I would say subjectively, there's two different, obviously subjectively, how can we decide and are there any objective ways we can measure it? Subjectively, on a rest day, nothing you do should be challenging. Nothing should feel hard, right? A low RPE, something like a six or lower, like it's a rest day, nothing should be hard. Does that mean you should do nothing at all? You should sit on the couch 24 hours in a day? Like, no, but nothing should be hard. So walking where your heart heart rate's not getting up, you're not climbing hills, like walking's great. Walking actually promotes recovery due to enhanced blood flow. Like subjectively, I would tell my clients, it's a rest day, you do nothing hard, nothing, That's subjectively difficult, nothing higher than an RPE-6. Now, objectively, are there any objective measures of what is hard and what is not? Yeah, I would say objectively, nothing that causes a burn, nothing that gets your heart rate up really high, nothing that causes soreness, nothing that causes fatigue. So yes, subjectively, hey, do nothing difficult. And the second is objectively, do nothing that gets you sore. Now I look at what you said, you're like, okay, I usually do AK steps, and on a rest day I do the same amount, and I do 45 minutes stretching. Now, 45 minutes stretching might be okay, but it also might not. 45 minutes stretching is quite a bit of stretching, and what people don't understand is stretching can actually be damaging to the muscle, and I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, exercise is damaging, but when you are when you push the, the length of the muscle and you really stretch it, you cause some form of muscle damage. I don't know about you, but if I do 45 minutes of stretching, I'm legitimately sore the next day, and that would, that would violate the objectivity of having no soreness. Now, if you do light stretching for 45 minutes and it makes you feel good and promotes blood flow and you don't get any sore, no burn, no fatigue, stretching's probably fine. I'm totally cool with that. That's great. Um, You know, all in, I think that's a totally fine rest day routine. Um, Just make sure you're not holding these stretches for like six minutes at a time to the point where you wake up the next day and you're extremely sore due to that stretch that you held for a fuck ton of time. Like, I don't know about you guys, I've done yoga and been super sore. Especially if I'm not used to that kind of stretching. So if all of a sudden you're like, "Ah, oh, great, I'm gonna pick up stretching," like I promise you, you're gonna be sore, and that would probably violate that objectivity of having no soreness. So just don't do anything challenging. None of this fucking. Oh, I'm just gonna go for a light 5k jog, or I'm just gonna I'm gonna do a spin class. It's my rest day. Like fuck that. That's not a fucking rest day. Your light 5k, your spin class, your hit class, your your hills, your 20,000 steps per day. It's not a rest day. That's not what a rest day is. A rest day is for resting. Don't do anything hard. Don't do anything challenging. Nothing should feel difficult. Nothing above a six RPE, whatever. But it's a rest day, rest. When it's time to work hard, work hard. Stop you know, letting your, your need to do something and sweat every day. Get in the way of a, what is supposed to be a very productive part of your program, resting. Next question is from Nick, at Nick M2, says, what are the major movement patterns that we should be doing? I'll try and keep this one relatively short here. Um, You should be doing an upper body push, both a horizontal and a vertical. Horizontal would be like a bench press. Vertical would be like an overhead press. Uh, A horizontal and a vertical pull. Horizontal would be all rowing movements. A vertical pull would be like a chin up or a pull down. You should do some form of hinge, squat, and a hip thrust in my opinion. Now these might be these might differ from, depending on who you're asking, but I think some form of hinge, some form of squat, some form of lunge, and some form of hip thrust. And I know you could say, okay, a lunge is really just a single leg squat, but I think that gets lost when you have, you know, when most people don't have a strength and conditioning background, don't understand the anatomy and the biomechanics that go into a squat and a lunge. You should do a hinge, which is like a deadlift or an RDL. You should do a squat, which of course is a, can be a number of different things. And when I say lunge, For everybody listening, I mostly care that you're doing some, when I say lunge, I mostly care that you're doing some fucking unilateral training. Something single leg, a Bulgarian split squat, a single leg hip thrust, uh, uh, walking lunges, reverse lunges, uh, step ups, um, single leg RDLs. Like when I say lunge, man, yes, I want you to do some form of lunge, some form of split squat, but I really just want you to make sure that you're doing some form of unilateral training, something on one leg, something where you're working one leg at a time. So some form of hinge, think deadlift. Some form of squat, think squat. Some form of lunge, think lunge, split squat, step up. Something unilateral, could be a single leg RDL as well. Some form of hip thrust, which is like a horizontally loaded hip extension. Um, and now I don't think everybody would give that answer. I do think that the hip thrust is uniquely beneficial due to like a reduction in axial loading where you're not having a bar you know, placed onto your spine. Um, you're not having load pulling your body downward. It's kind of horizontally loaded, which can actually be quite nice. Um, and a really great way to, to work the glutes in the shortened position. But okay, you could scrap the hip thrust if you want, you could probably work your glutes just fine, hinging, squatting, and lunging, you could be fine. But I would add a hip thrust in there because why not? Um, core, uh, when it comes to working our core, we're really working like, you know, depending on who you ask, whatever, between three and six different things, we're working flexion and extension in the spine. So some some form of flexion being like a crunch or a, a sit-up, some form of extension being like a back extension uh, rotation, something being like a you know a lateral medicine ball throw or a cable twist um, or a rush, like a Russian twist, and then we also want to work keeping the spine from moving ag- uh, from moving against external force. So we want anti-extension and anti-rotation. Super fancy. What it means is you something like a plank, right, where you're fighting against the extension. Your back wants to extend. Your, bo- your back wants to cave, and you want your hips want to go to the floor in a plank. And what you're doing is you're preventing them from doing that. And an anti-rotation is something like a Palloff press, where the, the the weight is pulling you in one direction, or or or, or weighted carries, right? Weight uh, anti-lateral flex, lateral flexion, um, something where the weight is pulling you in one direction, and you're not letting your body move. You're keeping your spine and your core stable. So we want flexion, extension, rotation, anti-extension, anti-rotation, and, and lateral flexion and anti-lateral flexion as well. Um, and then uh, honestly, I would add. Listen, if you just did that, you'd have a wonderful body and a wonderful health and you'd, you'd, you'd perform and be functional, and all that good stuff. But you could also add some form of bicep movements, some tricep movements, and some delt movements, isolation movements. I don't think those are major movement patterns, but I just wanna throw them in there because when I'm designing a program, I look at vertical push and pull. I look at hinging, squatting, lunging, hip thrusting, core. But I also look at biceps, tries, and delts because at the end of the day, a lot of clients are looking for some form of aesthetics and doing some curls, some push downs, and some lateral raises is gonna assist that. Cool, we, got, uh, we have time for one or two more here. Let's see. At Rachel, oh, at Rachel underscore, or Rachel H underscore fit says, how important is it to have carbs after working out and is there a time window? I'm gonna answer that first one first and then we'll go to the second one there. How important is it to have carbs after a workout? Now I'm gonna finish a sentence for her. How important is it to have carbs uh, after a workout in the context of building muscle? The answer is not important at all. Period, end of story. This idea that you need to have carbs, fast digesting carbs right after your training to help with recovery, like that's just not true. Um, It it is true in one context, which we'll go over in a second. But if your goal is to build muscle and you wanna assist in the adaptations of the the workout that you just had, it's only important for you to have protein. How much protein? Uh, You know, whatever. It comes out to like 25 to 40 grams or like 0.3 to 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. Now, it's I want to reiterate this. It's not important to have carbs after your training. If your goal is just building muscle. If you're looking to augment the training adaptations from a muscle and strength perspective, you just need protein. Very contrary to popular belief. You don't need to have, you know, cereal and a protein shake or and, and a banana and and you don't. To get maximum training adaptations, you know, people are like, oh, but the insulin, man, if you have whey protein, it spikes insulin just as much as carbohydrates. So um If your goal is muscle and strength adaptations from the workout, carbs are not that important after training. Is there a time window? (sighs) Kind of. Um, Oh, sorry, I'm gonna go back to the other one real quick. Is it ever important to have carbs after the workout? I'd say the one context in which it's important, two contexts in which it's important to have carbs after your training. The point of having carbs after the training is glycogen replenishment. It's the, glycogen is the the fuel that you're using oftentimes for these training sessions. So you want to replenish it. However, this idea that you need to replenish it right away is only important in the context of somebody who's doing two a day training. So if you're training in the morning and you're training again in the afternoon, then glycogen replenishment within that day is important for you because you have to perform again that day. But if you're like the rest of us who train once per day, you know, at max, You just don't need to replenish glycogen right away. You have hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to do it. Um, I suppose one other context would be if you're training late at night one night and then early in the morning the next day, I would probably have some carbs in that post-training window just as a a pseudo two-a-day training even though you are sleeping all night. um, I would probably replenish some glycogen in that post-workout meal um, if you're training at night and then again the next morning. Is there a time window? Here's the deal, guys. The time window is much wider than you think. And instead of worrying about the time window, think about it this way. You should be having between, if, you, if you're looking at maximize muscle growth, man, somewhere between three and six meals per day at around 0.3 to 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. So whatever, if you're 70 kilograms, like 160 pounds. Like, what does that look like? 0.3 would be like 21 to, so, so anywhere from, 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 three to six meals of 20 to 40 grams of protein to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now, if you're doing that, if you're having three to six meals that are adequately sized in terms of protein portion size, then this idea of anabolic window just kind of goes away because if you look at someone's day and how they split up those meals, they're adequately hitting leucine threshold, they're adequately stimulating muscle protein synthesis, they're adequately getting optimal return on their investment after the workout. However, is it a bad idea for you to have a shake within an hour or two of training? Like, of course not. Is it bad to to make that a routine just to make sure that you're not letting any gains slip away? Yeah, I think that's a totally fine routine. Um, But if you look at your life and you're saying, man, I'm just not gonna do that, but I am gonna have four meals per day with at least 35, 40 grams of protein. Then if you plug in your training somewhere in that day, you'll be hitting the anabolic window. Like If you have four meals with 40 grams of protein, uh, evenly spaced throughout the day, and you plug your training somewhere into that time schedule, then there's gonna be a meal somewhat shortly after that training within a, within a couple of hours with adequate protein, so I wouldn't really worry about it. Plus, to some degree, your body can utilize amino acids from previous meals, so I, I, I would really focus more on getting adequate protein feedings throughout the day than I would stressing about the anabolic window. However, it's not a difficult, habit and strategy to form to just have a protein shake or some some form of mixed protein, you know, 30 to 45, whatever, 25 to 45 grams depending on protein quality um, shortly after your training. I don't think that's a hard strategy to enact. Last question is gonna be how do I feel, or how do you feel, which is me, so how do I feel about supersets? Is it more beneficial to take a rest between sets and focus on one lift at a time? I'll keep this short and sweet. The best thing about supersets is that they are a great stimulus to time ratio. They save time. And sometimes saving time will increase effort because you just don't have an hour and a half to train. You need to get it in a bit sooner. Sorry guys, my dog is literally, she's dreaming. She's having a bad dream and she's like, anyway. So the best thing about supersets is that they are great stimulus to time ratio, that they are a really good use of your time. And if you do what we would call antagonist supersets where you're working two contra- contrasting muscle groups, so like a bicep and a tricep or like a push and a pull, they seem to not negatively affect each other so that you can get in more work without sacrificing the effectiveness of that work. So that's really the the biggest benefit of, um, of doing supersets. I love supersets, but I don't love them because they're special. I love um, supersets because most people, the biggest barrier for them to get in enough training is not effort or equipment, it's time. And if you do only single sets, then yeah, you can probably get in enough sets to have a good workout. But it's also a bit more likely that you get in more sets if you put some of them, pair some of them into antagonist supersets. So for a lot of clients, you know, you can make a, you can just get more stimulus per unit of time without sacrificing effectiveness if you intelligently program antagonist supersets, a quad extension and a hamstring curl, a bicep curl and a tricep pushdown a lat pull down and an overhead press, a bench press and a row. Like they are just, have been shown generally to not negatively impact each other because they're they're moving the weight in exactly different directions. Um, however, I, I guess I would put a caveat there that probably better used for isolation work than for compound exercises. I just think of doing a heavy set of bench press and then a heavy set of barbell rows. That just sounds terrible. Um, those are two relatively high, relatively highly fatiguing exercises but when you go to when you get to your isolation work and you're looking at like bicep curls and tricep pushdowns and you know even lateral raises which are kind of uh don't involve either of those muscle groups as well like it's totally fine to superset them especially if you're pressed for time especially at the end of the workout when sometimes you just want to get the fuck out of there um so probably best to use for isolation work and stuff that won't be limiting won't be limited by your cardiovascular system when i'm done with a set of bench press or and it's embarrassing to say but I, that I'm quite fatigued. Um, but oh, a set of barbell rows, like man, I just don't wanna immediately go into a heavy set of dumbbell presses, like I'm just tired. Um, but at the end of a set of a curls, I can just walk over and do some pushdowns. So I would stick to antagonist supersets, and I would probably mostly stick to them with your isolation movements. But I think they're awesome, but not because they're special physiologically, but because they have a really great stimulus to time ratio. All right guys, that is the end. That's longer than I wanted to go, but I always feel bad when I miss some questions, and I missed a few, so I'm going to add those to next q and I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate everybody asked a question. If you like the podcast, if you want your question answered, please just shoot me a DM or answer in the question box whenever I put it up. Thanks for listening guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram or you can email me jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com or check out the website jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.